1: You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with BiteClear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? This is the Intelligence Matters podcast with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morrell, sponsored by Raytheon. I think being a conservative in the foreign policy world, you understand that all the hard decisions are 51, 49 kinds of decisions when they're not indeed 50.1, 49.9, that you know the decision- They wouldn't be on your desk, They wouldn't be on your desk. Somebody else would have made them. That it's a murky world, that you cannot fully foretell the consequences of what you're going to do, and you just have to live with that some extent what Trump represents is a broader American disenchantment with the role that we've played in the world since 1945. The larger point to make here is there are certain ways in which actually he represents some continuity with the Obama administration. The kind of not only disappointment with but dismissal of our European allies, the desire to really disengage almost completely from the Middle East, the uh, unwillingness to really contribute to the, the building of alliances...
0: So if this doesn't change, if this goes on for some period of time, what does the world look like? I think it's quite conceivable,
1: absent some serious political leadership, that you could have a period where the United States is only erratically internationalist. There'll be more room for all kinds of states and non-state actors to first have their will In their local regions as to some extent they are already doing and they will also believe that they can get away with intervention in politics around the world in the kind of way that we saw in the last election and that we'll see in future so i think you'll see more of that and the result of that could be a more i think would be a more chaotic kind of world
0: dr elliott cohn is the executive vice dean the chief operating officer Of John Hopkins University's School of Advanced International Studies. He is the founder of the Strategic Studies Program there. From 2007 to 2009, Dr. Cohen served as counselor of the Department of State, advising Condoleezza Rice on the entire range of national security issues. Dr. Cohen has authored numerous books and articles, including a recent piece in Foreign Affairs titled America's Long Goodbye. I just had a chance to sit down with Dr. Cohen to discuss this very important article. We'll be right back with that discussion after a word from our exclusive sponsor, Raytheon. I'm Michael Morrell, and this is Intelligence Matters. From end-to-end cybersecurity, to high-energy lasers, to quantum computers, Raytheon is there. Advancing technologies that protect people, information, and infrastructure. Raytheon, making the world a safer place. Welcome to the show, Elliot. It's great to have you on Intelligence Matters, and it is always great to see you.
1: Well, it's great to be back together with you, Mike.
0: So you've had primarily an academic career, but you've had a number of touch points over the years with the U.S. national security community. Um, the most prominent was your service as counselor to the Secretary of State, to right. Condoleezza Rice uh, during her tenure, and really two questions that come out of that for me. One is, what does a counselor to the secretary say do every day? And even more important, what was it like to work for Condi, who I think is a remarkable person? Well, the uh, the
1: short answer to the first question, Mike, is uh, you do whatever the secretary asks you to do. It, it's a very odd position. There's nothing like it in any other foreign ministry in the world because you're actually quite a senior official. You're an undersecretary level official, and therefore you can represent the department in all kinds of ways, including the deputies committee, which we both served on, which is where a lot of the, the high-level policy, the shaping of decisions uh, gets, gets made. And then she can deploy wherever uh, she likes. And uh, because my background had mainly been in association with the United States military, I spent a lot of time on Iraq, Afghanistan. And then when we had crises blow up, like the uh, North Korean nuclear reactor in uh, Syria, uh, you know she gave me that portfolio and others, so it was fascinating day to day it was uh I would read an enormous amount of intelligence product i would periodically i there were certain routine kinds of things I would do, particularly on the the Iraq and afghan accounts and then I had a um, a brief to look at things and then walk into her office and in all privacy say boss, you're really not going to like what I'm about to tell you, but X. Uh, One of them was very much on the the North Korean account saying, you know, boss, I hate to tell you this, but I think the North Koreans are probably cheating on the plutonium declarations and they probably have a parallel nuclear program. I made at least one of my State Department colleagues very angry when I did that. I remember
0: that whole story. Yeah,
1: Yeah. well, you, you folks were incredibly helpful on that one. Um, but, but a really valuable, and Condi, to kind of transition to your second question, she was great. I mean, I was paid to disagree with her, and I did, in private. Um, she would be unhappy, of course, when I told her that something that really was not going to comport well with the policy that she wanted, but she would always hear you out. Uh, she wouldn't necessarily do what I wanted her to do, but, for example, when I went in and told her that, uh, and made a a powerful case that Afghanistan was not going well that was not what she wanted to hear but she she took it on board and uh, and of course this is somebody who just kind of lights up the room uh, whenever uh, whenever she turns she's to turn the charm on the last thing I would say about her and I think this is why she wanted somebody like me as counselor she, she's a, uh, a woman with many different pieces to her identity one critical part is being an academic and so often on overseas trips, we, we'd have dinner together on her plane. And uh, actually what she wanted to talk about was academic gossip. Mm-hmm. You know, so there was, and I think, you know, the State Department is a pretty hierarchical place. And I think she wanted another professor to argue with. Mm-hmm. So
0: that was my job. Yeah, Great. So, Elliot, you mentioned that you read a lot of intelligence. Yeah. And I'm sure both analysis and then the raw human intelligence and the raw technical intelligence. And I'd be interested in how helpful you found that. And even more importantly, what would have made it more useful to you as you look hmm. back on it?
1: Um, I did read it a lot of intelligence, and I did read both finished intelligence and some of the raw intelligence, particularly signals intelligence, that kind of thing. Uh, I found that they were always useful in terms of providing context, but I was always craving other kinds of things as well. So I I think it's very important for policymakers both to understand and respect what intelligence can provide you, but also understand what it can't. So for example, I'll give you two cases where um, sources other than the intelligence community could provide me, if you will, better intelligence than the IC. Um, The first was uh, we had an absolutely terrific Consul General in Peshawar, and she wrote these wonderful dispatches, these wonderful cables, as they call them in the State Department. And she was uh, really well plugged into the power structure in the that part of Pakistan, which was of critical importance to us. She knew the personalities. She had a wonderful feel for the politics. So if I wanted to know what was really going on in that part of the country, that's what I read. Uh, I would read reports by the International Crisis Group. Now, usually the last two pages were their policy recommendations, which were useless, so I'd rip those off and get rid of them. But they would have people on the ground, they could go places, other people couldn't go, and they they were very valuable. But, but having said all that, um, the American intelligence community produces a lot of wonderful material. My view is you have to immerse yourself in it. And then periodically... It's really important to be able to do a deep dive. And, of course, you helped me do that on a couple of occasions. I I I remember when we did on
0: North Korea where you came over. I was the head of analysis at the agency at the time. And you wanted to get smart on North Korea because of what was happening. And you came over. And I think we spent a couple of hours in my conference room. And we had probably 10 analysts around the table. Yeah. And I remember as we were walking out, you said to me, you have a great job. Is you have access to all this expertise, right? Yeah. At any moment in time. And it was absolutely true.
1: Yeah, it 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 really was. And there was one of the things I really respected about that was the ability to take quite technical knowledge. In that case, it was it was about whether the North Koreans were lying, which of course they were, about what they were up to. Um and, and that required some technical expertise and be able to put it into something that I could understand without a that kind of nuclear engineering background that um, that I needed. So that was uh, that was great. And, uh, you know, I, I, I will say I don't miss that feed. At first I did. I think a lot of people feel withdrawal. Um, it turns out when you get off the intelligence feed, you have time to read other kinds of stuff. Yeah,
0: I, I thought I was going to miss it too, and I didn't. Yeah. And, 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 and in fact, reading open sources and reading work by academics and think tanks can get you most of the way there. Not all the way there, It can get you most of the way there. Yeah,
1: I I very much agree with that.
0: Elliot, one more question before we jump into the meat of what I want to talk about, and that is you are often described as a conservative, sometimes a neoconservative, although that term tends not to get used so much anymore. But what I'm really interested in is how you see the fundamental difference between a conservative foreign policy thinker and a liberal Foreign policy thinker. What's the mm. difference?
1: Yeah, I do think of myself as a conservative, which, uh, as, a, as I tell people now, that's why I'm no longer a Republican. Um, I think uh, a. I'll give you just my feeling, and I, I don't like the term neoconservative. It, you know, it meant something in the 1970s, and I. Whenever I ask people what the apostolic creed of the neoconservatives is, they can never come up with a, a good definition. It's
0: just not meaningful anymore.
1: It's really not yeah. meaningful. Um, I think. What what is it that a conservative uh, foreign policy means and a conservative in general? Well, I would say a conservative in general is always aware that you can make things worse uh, and that so therefore you should be careful. I think conservatives often tend to have a somewhat dark view of, uh, of human nature and where it can take you. And, and so a... A deeper sensitivity to evil and it's more skeptical
0: inter- of the adversaries as yes. a result.
1: Yes. So I, I would say those those kinds of things. I think that you know, uh, liberal foreign policy thinkers. I don't want to caricature them. I think will frequently have more confidence in international institutions. I think they will be more confident that there are solutions to really hard problems um, I'm not in favor of being passive far from it but I think I'm probably particularly sensitive to the idea that you're going to solve one problem that will give you then a different set of problems that you have to deal with uh, I think the thing that distinguishes though a conservative from somebody who says look just don't do anything is an awareness that sometimes by doing nothing doing nothing is a decision too uh, and it can make things worse I, I maybe I would put it this way I think being a conservative in the foreign policy world, you you understand that all the hard decisions are 51-49 kinds of decisions when they're not indeed 51, 50.1, 49.9, that you know the decision. Oh,
0: they wouldn't be on your desk, They right? wouldn't be on Somebody your desk. Somebody else would have made them.
1: It, that it's a murky world, that you cannot fully foretell the consequences of what you're going to do, and you just have to live with that
0: there's a there's a perception that conservative foreign policy tends people more toward a military option is is that your sense or not is that is that not, not, i don't think necessarily i mean
1: there are some maybe who are i think the um the way in which that might be true is that I think it'd be very hard for a conservative foreign policy thinker to say, well, force doesn't matter Military power doesn't matter. So I think they tend to weight heavily the importance of military power in the conduct of uh, foreign policy. But I think a, uh, I would certainly say this for myself, I think a good conservative is also aware that, you know, you decide to use military uh, force, then all kinds of other things are going to flow from that, many of which you cannot foretell.
0: And certainly in the Obama administration, I saw liberals... Argue for the use of military force, and the conservatives are you against it? Yes. And, and Libya is the best example of that. Yeah. Where Secretary Clinton was pushing for military action, and Bob Gates was whoa, 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 whoa. Yeah. Let's think this through, right? This is not a good idea.
1: Yeah. Of course, some of that I'm sure was influenced by Iraq, where you you could make the reverse case that the conservatives right. were in favor and the liberal actually the liberals were pretty much in favor of it too. It just that
0: everybody was. I think a lot of people have forgotten oh, that yes. they were. No,
1: there's been a lot of rewriting of history there.
0: So, Elliot, what I really want to dig in on is an article that you recently published in Foreign Affairs titled America's Long Goodbye, The Real Crisis of the Trump Era. I think this is one of the most important pieces published in Foreign Affairs, which is an elite journal in the last few years. I read it with great interest. I found myself agreeing throughout. I found my head bobbing up and down. Can you walk us through the argument in that piece? And I want to take some time here, so don't worry about how long you're taking.
1: Sure. Well, thank you, and thanks for the uh, compliments. Um, well, I begin with the presidency of Donald Trump, and uh, just so your your listeners may be aware, I was, uh, from the outset, very um, critical of candidate Trump, uh, and then of President Trump, I helped organize these two letters by Republican foreign policy experts uh, that were severely critical of, of Trump during the campaign. And I don't think I've led up since in the the column I write for The Atlantic. But uh, what I begin the piece with is saying, look, you know, he hasn't caused the apocalypse. We haven't had World War Three. We didn't have uh, war and uh, the North Korean Peninsula, he hasn't done any of the really crazy stuff that people were afraid of, uh, withdrawal from NATO, something like that. Um, but uh, this is really the thesis of it is that there is this long building crisis because and – the, the, and what the fundamental argument is, is that to some extent what Trump represents is a broader – not complete, but a broader American – disenchantment with the role that we played in the, we've played we played in the world since 1945. And, and basically, I then unpack it. So I begin by saying, okay, why didn't Trump do some of the crazy stuff that he was talking about? And uh, there are a number of reasons. I think he's not – part of it is that he's not focused and disciplined enough to actually make the government work the way he would like to make it work. And as we both know, to get the government to do what you want to do is hard with a fantastic team – Uh, and with a really switched on president. And that's not what that's not what they've got. Um, I make the case further that he's he is actually in some ways risk averse Uh, and that you can even see that in a different way in his business career. Uh, You know, he preferred to go bankrupt with other people's money Mm -hmm. and debt. Um, I argue then that the damage that he's done has really been in terms of long the deterioration of long-term relationships, particularly with allies. But I think behind all that uh, – and I would also say that his – some of his advisors, including I think the team they have now, Secretary of State Pompeo and National Security Advisor Bolton, are much more skilled than their predecessors were at manipulating the president. Mm-hmm. And I, I use the word manipulated advisedly. But I think the um, the larger point to make here is there are certain ways in which actually he represents some continuity with the Obama administration, which will make friends of mine from that administration uncomfortable to hear. But I, I believe it's true. Uh, the kind of not only disappointment with but dismissal of our European allies, the desire to really disengage almost completely from the Middle East um, – the uh, unwillingness to really contribute to the the building of alliances. Uh, so, for example, the um, Trans-Pacific Partnership, which Trump walked away from. Well, the truth is, the Obama administration was not all that keen on it until the very end.
0: And you remember, Secretary Clinton ran against it. Yes, um, and exactly, in the campaign
1: exactly. So, uh, I think to some extent, he's representing a a kind of broader sort of uh, fatigue which has a number of different sources there's this these broader set of attitudinal changes in the united states which uh help provide some of the background for trump and which make me think that the issues that we're confronting now will last some time
0: which makes both obama and trump not not the actors but reacting to something going on in the country
1: uh, yes, or manifestations of something going on. In the country. And I you know, I have a complex view of the role of individuals in the making of history. They're both consequential individuals in different ways, but they are also, to some extent, consequential because they're reflecting some deeper forces and trends that are right. out there. I mean, they wouldn't be able to do nearly as much in opposition to those trends. So I'd say there are really three things at work. One is fatigue with the what people sometimes call the forever wars, Iraq most notably, Afghanistan, the sense that, you know, we've been stuck in the Middle East forever and body bags coming home and what exactly has it uh, bought us and and so on. I think, uh, so that's one. Second, behind that and even larger is the American people bought off on a global role for the United States in the wake of the Cold War. Actually, they bought off on it starting at the end of World War II uh, and then in the 1990s and early 2000s, there was no public reconsideration of the policy that had given us a military in order of magnitude larger than we had ever had and permanent alliances in peacetime and deployments overseas. I, I talk about this in my last book, The Big Stick, the, about the missing debate. And uh, there's a number of reasons why that debate didn't happen, but it didn't happen. So in some ways, we're seeing the the kinds of views that would have been represented earlier if, if people had wanted to talk about it at the end of the Cold War. And then I think that the third thing, which I I talk about in the article, is, you know, we are finally at the point where there is no living memory of the 1930s to speak of, and very soon there will be no living memory of the Second World War. And, what you know, it's impossible to overstate the impact of World War II, and and not just World War II, but the 1930s, on the sensibility of Americans throughout the Cold War. You know, every one of our Cold War presidents had some kind of connection to the Second World War. Uh, They all had learned some very profound lessons about what happens when the United States chooses not to be a major actor in shaping world order. I'm not talking about isolationism in the classic sense. I'm talking about the United States not thinking that only this country has the ability to really shape an international order. Well, that is no longer a living memory. And I think that's really important, and it's, it's often underestimated how important that is.
0: We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor, Raytheon, and we'll be right back with more of our discussion with Elliot Cohen. Do you hear that? That's the sound of the world changing, of networks connecting. Enemies evolving. You can't slow it down. You can't avoid it. You can't stop it. But you can stay a step ahead. Every day, Raytheon engineers are innovating, modernizing, delivering trusted, innovative solutions that protect people, information, and infrastructure. So as our world changes, we can make it a safer place. So if this doesn't change, if this goes on for some period of time, What does the world look like? What's the impact
1: of all of this? So, first, what the the, this is, I think that this, and I discussed this in the article, that this will be a United States that's sort of erratic. Uh, Trump will either lose in 2020 or he'll lose in 2024 or not lose, but he'll be succeeded or he may get impeached along the way or something like that. But I suggest that you could have different varieties of America first, either of the left or even of the disenchanted center. Um, So I think it's quite conceivable, absent some serious political leadership, that you could have a period where the United States is only erratically internationalist. Yeah, we sort of engage on Venezuela, but we're not really willing to really think through what it would mean if the Madero government's overthrown and, you know, how do you stabilize that region? Or you'll have one-off kinds of deals here and there. Um, And I think in a world like that, we won't be supplanted by a single power or even a coalition of powers. I don't think that's what's likely to happen. But there'll be more room for all kinds of states and non-state actors to um, first have their will in their local regions, as to some extent they are already doing.
0: Heading in that direction, certainly.
1: Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's, it is stunning to me that here you have. I'll just give one example. You have China putting a very large percentage of its Uyghur population into concentration camps. We're talking hundreds of thousands of people, and there is not a squawk about. Nary a peep. That. Nary a peep. Um, so you will have more. You can people can get away with stuff. They won't even be called out on it. You know, we we won't call out the Saudis when they murder. Uh, a journalist who is an american resident but but it'll get it'll get a lot worse than that so they'll be asserting themselves in a variety of ways that will erode international norms and they will also believe that they can get away with intervention in politics around the world in the kind of way that we saw in the last election and that we'll see in future so i think you'll see more of that and the result of that could be a more i think would be a more chaotic kind of world
0: is it a world in which there's a risk of conflict that Much would fun, yes. draw us in and so we would come full circle back to what we learned in world war ii
1: I, I think so except the difference would be that it's a world in which the united states wouldn't have the enormous economic leverage uh, or the same kind of economic leverage that it had it would be a world with a lot of people with nuclear weapons and possibly with other weapons, which would be biological in nature, which would would be able to deter us from doing things. You know, if Nazi Germany had had a full-blown nuclear arsenal, uh, can we be so sure that we would have gone into World War II the way we did? And, you know, and, and more broadly, I would say I, I have part of being a conservative, as I said, you have a dark view of human nature. The possibility for people screwing up and stumbling into a war that they don't really want, I think it gets much higher. You know, we just... We may have avoided another Indo-Pakistani war. Uh, who says it's guaranteed that we will always avoid that? Um, you know, they, I'm basically a an historian. And if there's one thing I think I've learned from history is human beings make all kinds of mistakes all the time.
0: Right. Most wars start that way. Yep. So when I travel around the country, Elliot, one of the things I hear from folks is – If there's a national security threat that is absolutely clear, like ISIS or like North Koreans with nuclear weapons, they want their government to do something about it. But when it's much less clear, like Vladimir Putin messing around in eastern Ukraine or the Chinese dominating the South China Sea, they ask themselves, what does that have to do with me? Why should I care about that? And I'm wondering to what extent we as national security folks need to do a better job of articulating why that kind of stuff matters to the I, American people. I, I
1: think we do need to do a much better job, but it's a, a job not just for us, but for political leaders. Um, and, and again, this is nothing particularly new. You know, If you look at what was the, the debate last time we had America first, which was shortly before World War II – There were arguments that people were making, you know, the Versailles peace treaty was unfair to Germany uh, or look at British and French behavior in their colonies. Are you really telling me that they're any better? And Europe is really far away. What difference does it make to us? Uh, Part of the difference then is you had as president, a very adroit politician, Franklin Roosevelt, who understood that you had to make a case in a way that people who do not focus on foreign policy, who are smart, but don't pay a lot of attention to it, can understand. And I think one consequence of the Cold War and then of that period in the 1990s when everything was going our way, so it wasn't important, and then the 2000s when you had the crisis of 9-11 is politicians, particularly presidents, got out of the habit of talking to the American people about the American role in the world. What what we should do, what we have to do, uh, what the consequences are if we don't do things, I don't think they've thought of it as part of the job description. And I regret to say that I don't see a whole lot of that either these days in Congress. You know, I, I was pretty close to John McCain. I think John McCain understood that that was part of his job. You know, it was to make the case for why the United States needs to be engaged. And there was a generation of congressional leaders who came out of World War II uh, who also felt that way.
0: You actually talk in your article about yeah. John's passing and, and what that means for where we are, maybe the last the last individual in the Hill who really understood what we're talking about. Yeah.
1: And, and somebody who understood that the Senate has a particularly important role to play in terms of exercising leadership. You know, McCain would go to all the hard places. He'd put himself in harm's way, but he understood he was representing the United States. And he also understood the importance of being there, seeing for himself, and then coming back and talking to people back home, whether everybody from the president to his constituents in, in Arizona. And I I wish, I thought we had more people who could do that anywhere near as well as, as he could. Now that's, you know, we just had a large congressional delegation go to the annual Munich Security Conference. I think that was a good thing. I think they wanted to send a message to our European allies that the United States is not just walking off the stage. And and the great strength of this country is we can grow new political elites. We're, we are better at that than anybody else uh, in the world. But it all comes down to leadership.
0: Is there a, is there a particular moment when you think we began this – shift away from traditional american leadership in the world to this new world that you're describing is this a result of the the, the aftermath and politics of the iraq war is, is 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 there a particular moment or or is it more long term
1: you know it's very hard to tell close to the events and having taken part uh, in a marginal way and some of them I, I'm I'm a good enough historian to know that I'm a terrible judge of that I I think um you could see some of the seeds of this in the immediate post-war post-cold war period but I th- I do think as Iraq went sour what it did was it wasn't it was partly the cause but more that it it activated lots of doubts that people already had you know that's how I think politics often works that it's not that somebody says something that you've never thought of before but that you ideas that were kind of inchoate and in the back of your mind uh that you didn't really express and you knew other people didn't agree with them so you wouldn't put them out there Now, all of a sudden it's okay to lay them out on the table and uh to put them pretty forcefully and their politicians who were saying the kinds of things that you've always had this kind of uneasy feeling about um and that i i do think iraq was the trigger in many ways for ideas th- that have been there for a long time you know we Dwight D. Eisenhower had to, fight, had to fight a really big battle with Robert Taft over NATO. So it's, th- these views have been out there forever. Um, and in
0: some ways, this period of American leadership in the world is an aberration in our history. It, it is, in some ways, an aberration. We spent a little time up front talking about North Korea, um, and I know you've spent a lot of time thinking about it. I just want to get your sense of what's going on today. How do you think about the Singapore summit and the Hanoi summit and where we are and where we might be going?
1: So, so uh, you know, we're all colored by our own experience. So the first thought I had was, boy, I've seen this movie before. You know, I was in uh, the Bush administration. played in this movie before. I played in this <laughs> movie before. I was a bit of a spoiler in it. Um, you know, I remember when they blew up the smokestack at Young Beyond and the assistant secretary of state was running our negotiations with them was ecstatic. This is the end. Of course, your people said, no, actually, they can rebuild the smokestack. And I, I vividly remember when I told Condé, you know, they're cheating on their declarations. And, and the circumstantial evidence is really good that they have a parallel program to enrich uranium. So this assistant secretary comes into my office and he says, Counselor, what do you think is going to happen? They're going to fling open a steel blast door and there's going to be a room full of spinning centrifuges. A year later, actually, uh, Sig Hecker, who you know well from the Los Alamos National Laboratory, went there. They flung open a steel blast and door, showed him those and interviews. there was a room full of spinning centrifuges. So this is not the first time that American policymakers have deceived themselves into thinking that there's a deal. First thought. Second thought, you, you never send a president to a summit unless it's just to sign the deal and have a great ceremony or maybe to close the last 2 to 5%. These folks decide, or the president, I think, decide it's okay to have him make the deal there. And that, I think, is really pretty crazy. The third thing, I think, is one of the ways in which Trump is um, is a problematic foreign policy president, is it's pretty easy to figure out how to manipulate him. And the North Koreans are good at that. Mm-hmm. And so that even when that this thing collapses you know they've got him in a place where he's saying that no i don't think that uh, they knew that uh, uh this young man uh, uh mr Warmbier, had been was right. essentially right. murdered by them
0: right you know so um, you're painting you're painting a pretty um dire uh picture of the future here and i'm wondering if there was one thing that we could do to make a difference here what that might be you know I mean, I'm, I am a glass
1: half empty kind of guy. So I, am I. It's, yeah. that's, well, you're an that's, intelligence that's, that's officer, that's for the goodness sakes. Of that's being, that's being, what you're, yes. you're supposed to do. It's, uh, you smell flowers, you look for the funeral. Um, look, I think the most, I, I am a long term optimist about the United States. I think it's the most resilient country on earth. Um, I, I think the most important thing, and this is a good thing, which this era is producing, is for people to get involved in politics. And, with the, I mean, some of the people we both know who've run for office, people like Tom Malinowski. I was delighted to see him run for office. Uh, I was delighted to see on the, on the other side uh, a, uh, somebody who I knew as a graduate student, Mike Gallagher from Wisconsin, run and win as a representative. Uh, the, the challenge is to get engaged. And the main thing I would tell your audience is, you know, we've had it really easy, our generation. When I think about what my parents and what my grandparents lived through, the Great Depression, World War II, McCarthy, Korea, you know, cities up in flames, the struggle for civil rights, Vietnam, and that, that's just my parents. My grandparents mm-hmm. lived through the First World War and the influenza epidemic. I mean, who says we have right, it easy, right, right. you know?
0: Elliot, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: That was Elliot Cohen. I'm Michael Morrell. Please join us next week for another episode of Intelligence Matters.
1: This has been the Intelligence Matters podcast with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morrell, sponsored by Raytheon. The podcast is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, and Claire Himes. If you haven't already, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you download podcasts. You can follow the show on Twitter at Intel Matters Pod and follow Michael at Michael J. Morrell. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS News Radio.
0: One, two, three, four. Those are numbers. But you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month
1: for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. Auto Trader.